Okay, well, you get the privilege this morning of sleepy Sean Furtick. I only say that because I'm using a handheld mic. Anyways, only a few people get that. Uh, but, uh, what? Just because I'm using the mic. It's Josh's favorite uh, pastor, so just look that up. Anyways, um, so a little tired this morning. Uh, anybody that knows, we were out. Um, we went to a, played a benefit concert last night for... Um, a guy named Rob up in Fredericksburg. We didn't know what to expect walking in. Uh, kind of a kind of a weird place. Um, it's a bar. <laughs> People are doing what they do at bars, and that's having uh, deep theological conversations. Um, that's what they do, you know. And uh, so we um, we were there and uh, got to minister to this guy Rob. He's 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 had uh, a spinal. Uh, uh, thing has something happened with his I don't know I'm not a doctor um, I didn't go into that line of work um, and so anyways uh, he had to end up having a stroke he has a lot of medical bills and so anyways we were asked just to go uh, participate in this benefit uh, concert for him and so uh, we did and uh, it was incredible um, it was incredibly long um, and we didn't get home till about 3 a.m. and then got up here and uh set everything back up for this morning. So, if I pass out, um, you, can, uh, pick, you can pick from two pastors in the room to hear from for the rest of the morning, whichever one tickles your fancy. And that is in the Southside Sling book that Joshua did. Is that, is that phrase in there, tickle your fancy? If anybody has not, see, that's a new one. See, I can be a co-writer. Okay. Also, this mic makes me feel like I could do stand-up. So, who knows what we're going to get this morning with sleep deprivation, and a handheld mic. So, uh, anyways, that was a shameless plug for uh, Josh's uh, most riveting uh, book yet, Southside Slang, for Yankees, City Slickers, and Outsiders. Which is, literally, that's a book he wrote. It's about terminology of Southside Virginia, and it's probably been more successful than any book he's ever written before in his life. So, uh, shout out to mom and dad for all those years of college. Um, so, anyways, if you want that book, it's a fun little read. It's a, it's a fun little read. Uh, it's on Amazon. I haven't read it. It's what I hear. Um, so, anyways, um, if you want to open up uh, your Bible uh, to Acts chapter 24, um, that is where we are going to be. Uh, we're going to pick up that uh, so we can finish Acts and move on to something else. Um, I'm just kidding. Just, that was a joke. That was a terribly, terribly flat joke. But uh, we've, been, we've been in Acts for a long time, right? And um, if, you, if you haven't gotten it yet, um, I mean, Acts moving through um, the ascension of Jesus, right? In the beginning of Acts, the Holy Spirit uh, coming upon uh, the apostles and uh, the movement of the gospel, right? Um, think of, I mean, think, think about this, um, the Roman Empire, 200 years after uh, Jesus' uh, resurrection and ascension, uh, through the, the ragtag uh, 12 plus some more, um, Christianity becomes the, the religion of the Roman Empire. It's crazy, within 200 years, uh, from a group of um, really uneducated, uneducated people, um, uned, uneducated men. These were fishermen. These were tax collectors. Um, really, uh, Paul is one of the only ones that, that really had uh, the education credentials. Remember, Paul was uh, really going to be um, uh, a Pharisee. 
right? He, he had studied the law. Um, he was going to be a religious uh, leader of the Jews. And, and he was uh, persecuting Christians. And then we, we see his road to Damascus experience where Jesus, right, Jesus um, illuminates and blinds him with bright lights about like what's shining in my face right now. Um, probably a little more powerful than that. And uh, Paul is, is changed. He's radically changed, right? He's radically changed. And, and we see that conversion in Paul, and we see um, the, the, the difference in Paul's life. And so um, what we're going to read today is, is much about waiting, Anybody ever had to wait on anything? You, oh, you went to the DMV this week? Okay, yeah. Um, that, anybody's kids seen that Zootopia movie with the sloth and the DMV? I just thought that was just, that was so representative. When you, when you walk, and there's a, there's a line at the, there's a line at the place to get your ticket to, the, to then go get in another line, that's when you know I should have done this online, gone somewhere else. <laughs> So, you know, you've waited. Where else do we wait? Wait at the grocery store. Um, we wait. Uh, Isaac and I wait at Lowe's and Home Depot. And we wait and we wait and we wait. And then we just go do it ourselves, and that's how it gets done. Um, but we wait all the time. We're always waiting. Um, John Mayer is still waiting on the world to change. Um, I don't know if that's ever going to happen. But he is. He's still waiting. He's still singing about it. We see uh, in the Bible, right, waiting come in many forms. We see... Uh, Joseph, right? We see Joseph waiting in, uh, in prison. Um, we see Abraham uh, waiting on a son. What happens in Abraham's waiting? He gets tired of waiting and decides to take matters into his own hands. And we see, we see the colossal mess up from that. We see Moses, right? Moses waiting 40 years to be the deliverer the deliverer of the Israelites out of Egypt, and then he waits 40 years in the wilderness, right? And then he gets tired of waiting, and he sins, and so therefore God doesn't allow him into the promised land. And so, so many times in our lives, we are, we are waiting, waiting on something, and, and it's what we do in those moments uh, that a lot of times defines the outcome. And so here in the New Testament, here in Acts 24, uh, waiting is, is no different, is no different for Paul. And so sometimes delay is a part of God's design. It's a part of God's providence in our lives. And we have to cling to that, and we have to, we have to believe that God does truly desire the best for us. And so he, he spends, he's going to spend and it's, going, it's only going to be a paragraph at the very end of this chapter. But it's two years in this prison that Paul's going to be in. It seems we're going, to, we're going to fast forward in his life, but please do not miss that paragraph. That's two years of an injustice in Paul's life. And what does Paul do with that? And so uh, the setting here, Remember, uh, back a couple chapters, uh, Paul is essentially heading back to Jerusalem, right? We've, this is what we've been reading about, just to kind of recap, because I know we've had some, some breaks the past, uh, the past couple weeks. But uh, Paul is, is coming uh, to Jerusalem, 
right? And um, essentially, uh, part of what he's doing is, and don't miss this because this is important too, but he's, he's bringing funds for the, the famine, for these hunger relief funds, uh, to the Jews, to the, to the church in Jerusalem, from who? The Gentile church. The Gentiles have given money to Paul to give to the Jews, the Jewish church. Remember, the Jewish church thinks that they're what? All high and mighty. They don't look too, uh, they don't look too, too good down on the, uh, on the lowly Gentile Christians. And so <clears throat> Paul is bringing this money, it's a part of what he's doing, to Jerusalem. And he even continues to head to Jerusalem after being warned. He gets warned by people, and he gets warned in a dream that what? Afflictions and bonds are to come his way, that he's going to face persecution, that he's going to be, um, he's going to be imprisoned in some sort of fashion. I mean, I, I don't think that Paul really could have known uh, maybe to the extent of his imprisonment, but he knew something was coming. When he gets to Jerusalem, what, what happens? Is he immediately just embraced with open arms by, by the Jewish church? Oh, here's, here's Paul. He's come back to us. No, he's criticized, right? He faces criticism from, from the Jewish church, criticism over his practices, criticism over false rumors, right? They, um, they, they falsely accuse him or... or um, Think about it this way. In, um, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 13 is the what chapter? Love, right? And um, it says that, uh, that hope uh, bears all things, believes all things, right? And so um, the way that I saw this illustrated one time was that in that believes all things, right? In, in talking, let's just say in with, with your spouse, right? That that... Your spouse comes home work from late, or comes home late from work. Um, sorry, my brain is is a sleepy brain. Anyways, so your spouse comes home late from work, right? And this is a continual thing. What happens over time? You are tempted to what? Believe that something not so good is happening or going on, right? But what Paul tells us in Corinthians is that when love hopes and believes all things, it means that there's a, there's a gap in between what we know for fact and what we're tempted to, tempted to think. And in that gap, we need to believe the best. We need to believe the best in our spouse, believe the best in our kids, believe the, until we're proven wrong, right? Love doesn't operate on false assumptions or even rumors. And so here, instead of believing the best in Paul, instead of, instead of, weighing the facts that they know about Paul's character and who he is, they decide to, to essentially come at him with these, with these criticisms. Well, we've heard this, and we've heard this, and what do you have to say for yourself? And they really thought that he was teaching the, uh, the Gentiles uh, not to obey the Mosaic law, that he was teaching them not to obey the traditions of, of the Jews. Now, don't get me wrong, he wasn't going around teaching the like animal sacrifice and, and having to do all the cleansing rituals because he clearly, he clearly had preached that because of the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus, that a new age had dawned, 
okay? But these were false accusations. Paul was not teaching the Gentiles not to obey uh, things like the Ten Commandments, uh, things that laws that, that the Jews had been um, had been uh, obeying, uh, laws that had come from God. He, he wasn't teaching that, but they were accusing him of that. And so he ended up he ends up going to the temple to worship. He ends up going to the temple to worship, and he uh, he goes in uh, with this Gentile. And he, he goes to the inner part of, of the temple, and as he comes back out, and he's out in, I guess, kind of the common area of the temple with this uh, Gentile uh, believer, um, the Jews from Asia see that and immediately assume that he's allowed this Gentile into the inner part of the temple, which was a huge no-no in Jewish tradition. And... Although he had not done that, that's what they accuse him of. And they start rioting. They start getting mad over it. A mob forms, and they seize Paul. And so that uh, brought us to the end of chapter 23 and the beginning of chapter 24. And so anyways, they seize Paul, and they summon uh, the Roman commander, uh, Lysias. Okay? They summon the Roman commander, Lysias, is what we read about last week. And Lysias is about to um, flog Paul or beat him, right, uh, to, I guess, get answers from him, find out what's going on, until he finds out what? That he's a Roman citizen, right? And Lysias could have been in big trouble for doing that to a Roman citizen. So, because he was a Roman citizen, he was entitled to what? Our modern-day form of do Due process, right? He was to a court hearing. He he was he was at least entitled to that. And so, uh, it's cool because Lysias ends up being an advocate for Paul. He ends up being an advocate for Paul, and he writes a letter to who? Felix, right? He writes a letter to Felix, the governor in Caesarea over over the uh, over Judea, okay, the Roman governor there, and he he really advocates on Paul's behalf. Here's this guy. Here's what happened. He's coming to you. Here's my take on what's going on. Okay? And then we got with uh, my, um, my app here um, changed uh, Turtleist to Turtles, um, which, yeah, Turtleist was kind of a dork. Uh, he just was. He, was. he was a dorky guy. But they, the, who is he? Who is he? He's a what? Lawyer? Hired by who? The Jews. So the Jews hire this dorky lawyer um, who, who knows... By the way, this is just advice. Not happened to me, but my father could stand up here and tell you many, many times. Don't ever go into a courtroom thinking that you can argue for yourself. Because we don't talk the what? The language. We don't talk the language of the court. And it's very, he, it's very, very easy to get in big trouble when you don't know the lingo of the court. So the Jews are very smart in what they do. They hire a lawyer named Turtleus that knows the lingo of the courts, knows how to, how to talk the talk. And so he is arguing the prosecution side of this case to Felix. And what does he start with? 
What does he do to Felix? Gives him praise, right? He's kissing up to him. <laughs> That's what he's doing. And what do we know about Felix? But what do we know about Felix's character? Is Felix somebody that should be looked up to? No, Felix was ruthless. Uh, remember that, that, uh, that Felix uh, used to be a what? He used to be a slave. Um, A.T. Roberts says that he was one of the most depraved men of his time. Uh, Tactus says of him, with all cruelty and lust, he exercised his pa- the power of a king with the spirit of a slave. Um, we w- Interesting. We uh, took the kids to see Aladdin uh, the other day. And uh, if you've ever, anybody ever seen the movie Aladdin? Okay. It, okay, Josh has, one of his favorite movies. Um, but there's this, there's this guy who's second in command named Jafar, right? And where did he come from? He's, he was a slave. He was a slave. He, he, didn't, he didn't make it to that, that, that place of power, right, uh, by, by family, you know, um, inheriting it or, or something like that. But he, he was a slave. And so the, that's, that's, his whole, um, that's his whole motive. That's, that's what drives his emotions is that he's going to get power and that he's going to, he's going to um, reign and rule and be the most powerful there ever was. And it, it, his, his character is, is a depraved character. It, it's, 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 it's ruthless and it's, it's, it's emotionless. It, it's not uh, anywhere, uh, any markings of what a good leader should be. And so uh, Felix, I, I see, is the same way here. Uh, Felix is just in this place of power, and, and his air is such that, look at me now. And whatever i got to do to keep this power, I'm going to keep it. And so we see uh, that, that, Tertullus, um, that Tertullus makes his points. He, he, he kisses up to, uh, to Felix and in the next couple of verses that we're going to read, we're going to start and pick up with Paul's defense. So Tertullus has presented his case. And what does he say? What does he say of Paul? That he was a plague? What else does he say? That he was uh, causing riots, stirring up riots, right? Which was, which was a big deal for the Romans, right? They didn't want riots. I mean... Felix was known for being ruthless in putting down these insurrections. He was known for that. If there was even a hint of a revolution, Felix stomped it down. And so that's what they accuse Paul of. They also accuse him of, of defiling the temple, right? They, they make all these false accusations against Paul. And we pick up in verse 10 um, with Paul's defense, and it'll be... Uh, there on your screen, but let's uh, read that together in Acts 24, starting in verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that this is not more than 12, that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you that they now, uh, what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you according to the way which they call a sect. 
I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having hope in God, which these men themselves accept. And there will be a resurrection of both the just and the, and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought, uh, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else... These men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather acute knowledge of the way, or a, a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, to, uh, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for, for, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At this time, he hoped that money would be given by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When the two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Don't miss that last paragraph of how long Paul uh, was, was in prison. And so those charges against Paul were that he was, in the eyes of Jews, a, a real pest, right? Uh, that he was um, a plague, as they put it, um, in, in no uncertain terms. Uh, he stirred up rest among the Jews, uh, and they said worldwide, <laughs> or, uh, worldwide, throughout the Roman Empire, he's, he's stirring unrest among the Jews. Uh, that he was the ringleader of a non-Jewish sect, right? That basically he's a revolutionary, um, and then he tried to desecrate the temple. And so we see Paul's defense in these in the first uh, in these in these first eleven verses that we just read. Um, that Paul began um, not with praising Felix. He de he just clearly states he just goes right into. Uh, defending himself against these accusations. And so, um, his introduction was different than Tertullus. Um, Tertullus's introduction, most of what he said was flowery, was just praising Felix, but Paul doesn't do that. And so, Paul defends himself with four main points. And so, he first says that there were no, there was no witnesses to this. So, there's no basis for any of this. I mean, the, what he's, he's going to waylay their, um, their accusations against him. I mean, there's, this wouldn't stand up in any court. Paul would have been acquitted. Paul would have walked out of the courtroom that day, a free man. There was no witness, no basis for the charge. Um, he, he rightly argues uh, that, the, remember, the Jews, the Asian Jews, were the ones that started the riot. 
they were the ones that got mad at him for what they perceived to be a defiling of the temple, and they started the riot, and they came and seized Paul. And then yet they're accusing him of being the one to start the riot. And so uh, he had no desire to defile the temple. He had come to worship. So he tells, he tells Felix that he had come to what? Bring alms, right? He had come to Jerusalem uh, to, to worship in the temple, uh, to bring that offering from the Gentiles to the Jewish church. That's why he was there. And so and he reminds the, the court that who was not even present? Who wasn't even there? The accusers. The accusers weren't even there. None of them. And so Felix is, is left in this position to make a decision, or rather a indecision. But don't miss this, that in God's providence, Felix was a dishonest ruler. It's a part of God's plan that Felix, that his character was his character. I mean, don't miss that. Remember that God is sovereign and that God knows all, sees all, and all of it is a part of his plan. And so Felix's dishonesty and Felix's character is all a part of God's providence. And so there's a couple things, a couple reasons why, why Felix um, has this indecision. Um, one... He knew that making any decision with Paul would gain him no favor with anyone. He knew that if he, if, if he let Paul free, that that was just going to cause more uh, of an uprise in the Jewish community. But essentially, what did the Jews want from Felix? What did they really want? And I think Felix misses this. They essentially wanted Felix to turn him back over to their court. Why? So they could what? So they could kill him. So they could assassinate him. I mean, if you go back in, at the end of, of, of uh, 23, Lysias, when they're transporting him to Caesarea, he's transported under what? Heavy guard. Not light guard, heavy guard. Why? Because Lysias knew what? That the Jews were desperate to snuff him out. That the Jews were desperate to get rid of Paul. And that they had an assassination plot against Paul. That they said, well, we tried to stone him, and we, could, we, we weren't su successful in that. We tried him in our courts, and we weren't successful in that, so we're going to assassinate him. And Lysias knew that, puts Paul under heavy guard. And so all of this, Felix doesn't want to, to really have to make a decision. So he just says, he just delays it. Anybody ever been in a, in a court case where they just delay, 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 delay and then nothing ever gets done? You see, uh, I, I don't know, I, I'm guessing whatever, like, the parking lot down here where, like, the, uh, um, like, down here, Route 10, like, where they were going to build a Publix or something, and then it never happened. I'm sure that that's probably under some sort of litigation, and that will probably be a forest before it's ever anything else. It's just, it's crazy how that stuff works. It's crazy how litigation and, and things work, and so... So Felix uh, puts Paul in prison so he can make a decision. 
The other part of it is that I think Felix was hoping that he could bribe Paul. Felix was hoping that Paul would maybe spend a month or two in prison and say, you know what, it's, it's more worth me being out on the mission field and not in this prison, and all I've got to do is just kind of pay Felix under the table, and he'll let me go. That's what Felix was hoping. But what happens? What happens with Paul? What happens with this, this um, injustice, this inconvenience in Paul's life? What does he do? He uses it to do what? Share the gospel. With who? But specifically who? Felix and his wife. Felix and his wife. Also, what else? And scholars kind of debate on maybe when this happened, but during Paul's imprisonment here and then next in Rome, what's going on? What's going on that directly impacts you and me today sitting in this room? He's writing the majority of the New Testament. The majority of the New Testament that we have right here in front of us, Paul is writing from these prison cells. And so while it may seem an injustice to us that Paul is in prison, it's, it's God's providence. And, and while we wait on God, let us not miss what he's preparing for us, what he's setting before us, what he's allowing us to do that might have an impact for future generations. Don't, don't miss that, that Paul here while he's sharing the gospel and proclaiming the gospel, he's writing. He's writing letters to the Philippians, the Colossians, the Galatians. He's writing all of these things. And so Drusilla and Felix are interesting people. Drusilla, I found, was most interesting. Anybody know um, any background on Drusilla? Drusilla was a Jew. She was the uh, youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa I. And at about this time, she was only about 20 years old. She had been uh, betrothed to some other king from somewhere, married him, and Felix went and basically stole her from him and married her. This is Felix's third wife, okay? Uh, Felix's, actually, it was really interesting. Felix's first wife uh, was a, um, was a, uh, the daughter of uh, Cleopatra. Weird. Weird. That was Felix. So, I mean, Felix married these ritzy people. I don't know. It was, it was like the royals or something like that. Um, but he marries Drusilla, and Drusilla, the, the daughter of, of Herod Agrippa, um, and they have, this is also actually interesting, they have a son uh, named Agrippa who, uh, do you know how he died? He died in the eruption of Vesuvius. Weird. So that uh, eruption in Vesuvius, the volcano, um, yeah, he died in that. It was crazy. It was weird. Weird stuff. But do you know who her great uncle was? Her great uncle was Herod Antipas, who killed who? John the Baptist. Um, she was one of the daughters of Herod Agrippa I, who killed who? Come on, Scott, you know this. 
Not Je- would you say Jesus? <laughs> no, not Jesus. That was the Sunday school answer. James. So her father killed James. Her uncle killed John the Baptist. And who did her great-grandfather kill? Who did her great-grandfather try to kill? Jesus. See, there you go. You were waiting for that one. Uh, remember uh, Herod the Great. Herod the Great was her great-grandfather. Okay, So she comes from this long line of people that have been working unknowingly to snuff out the gospel to kill Jesus the Messiah to kill John the Baptist the forerunner to Jesus to kill James uh, the leader of uh, the church not that James but the disciple the apostle right and then where does she end up in front of Paul for how long two years two years that Paul is sharing the gospel to this woman. And she comes herself, which meant what? That she was interested. She comes from this long line of murderers, yet she's interested in what Paul has to say. Don't miss that number one, I I think a lesson that we learned from this, look at the grace that God extended to Felix and Drusilla. Paul's imprisonment is a part of God's grace for Felix and Drusilla. God loved Felix so much that he sent his son to die for Felix, but God allows his apostle Paul to be imprisoned and put in front of Felix and Drusilla so that they might hear the gospel and they might be saved. How powerful is that? That God goes to great lengths. And, and, and it's not that, it's not that um, God gives Felix uh, this five-second um, five um, opportunity to hear the gospel in the grocery store line. That's not, that's, that's not the amount of time that God, God's grace allowed Felix to hear the gospel. He allows him to hear it for two whole years. Any time that he wanted to. And it says that he went to Paul often. Now his motives, his motives were not good. But God's grace to Felix nonetheless um, is powerful. What amazing grace that we see with that. God purposed and promised to Paul that he would be his instrument before kings and before rulers. And we see, we see God here fulfilling his promise to Paul, placing him in front of Felix. And what we're going to read next is more of God's providence in that through a technicality, Paul's going to get sent to Rome where he's going to get to preach the gospel in Rome. And so the two-year delay was, was a manifestation of God's grace to Felix. But the grace was rejected. Maybe you've been waiting on that coworker or that spouse or that child or that family friend or whoever to, to hear the gospel and to accept the gospel and be saved. 
Paul spends two, Paul, Paul, the writer of half of the New Testament, spends two years with these people, and they still reject the gospel. Is it because Paul was ineffective? Is it because Paul didn't know what he was talking about? Is it because Paul couldn't uh, rightly um, uh, articulate God's grace? No. And so don't think that, that it's because of you that people do not come to a saving knowledge of Christ. It's because of their hearts. And all we can do is continually pray for them and be obedient like Paul was obedient. Every time that Felix and Drusilla wanted to meet, Paul was there to listen and to converse. It's not up to us to to save anybody. God does that work. All we have to do is be willing to obey and be willing to be a vessel. Um, I think next that, uh, that we see in these verses is that the power of God's word and the truth of his word are not mutually exclusive. They are, they are linked together. Paul was most definitely given an opportunity to modify the gospel. I talked to somebody the other day who said, um, you know, our, our church is a seeker church. That's what we do. There are many that modify the gospel to get bigger crowds, to not be offensive. Did you, did you guys see what happened last Sunday with uh, David Platt? Anybody see that? We talked about it in our home groups. So while we were meeting here last Sunday, uh, David Platt has become a pastor um, of a church. If, if anybody doesn't know David Platt, um, big in our convention in the SBC, um, he was the president of the International Missions Board uh, for a while and uh, lived here in Richmond and has now taken a, uh, a pastor uh, position at McLean Bible Church in Northern Virginia. So uh, David Platt was probably um, uh, tired last Sunday, uh, probably um, in between. It was in between the, I guess, the 11 o'clock service and the 1 o'clock service, um, about to preach again. Uh, he gets word that, in, hey, David, in just a few moments, the President of the United States is going to come in here and want you to pray for him. What? I mean, if, if we got that word, we are like, Josh, stop, stop joking. Um, stop telling those weird jokes. Um, but w- David, in that moment, has a decision to make. Do I allow this? Do I, do I not allow this? What do I say? What do I do? And um, if, you were in our home, if you were in our home groups, you, you heard the prayer that David prayed. Um, David knew that because of uh, Timothy, that we are commanded to pray for our leaders, no matter who they are, no matter if we agree with them, no matter if we don't agree with them, no matter if they're wonderful people or not wonderful people, we're commanded to pray for them. And so David allows the president to come in there. The president doesn't say anything. David just prays for him. And in David's prayer, David presents the gospel clearly that God loves uh, us, that God loves uh, personally the president and wants him to be saved and wants him to, to worship him. And he prays over his family and he prays over our country. And anyways, it, it, was, a really, it was a really awesome prayer. 
And at the end of it, he had people that support the president that are Christians that were mad at him for not being more supportive or whatnot. He had people in his own church who were mad at him because they don't like the president and they didn't want him in there and they were hurt that David would do this. He had people in our convention, leaders of certain universities not so far away, uh, using uh, terrible wordage uh, to, to, to criticize David Platt. And all that to say, no matter what you do, people will always misrepresent it, people will always misinterpret it, and you'll always be criticized. And all we can do is obey the gospel, obey the truth of God's word, not water it down, not modify it. And Paul does not do that here. He never minimizes the gospel. He clearly articulates and preaches the gospel, no matter who he's talking to. And so next, the, the power of God is not mutually exclusive to how we live. Remember that we're being what? In Romans 12, we're being sanctified. It's a process. Salvation is kind of a three-part process that we're justified. We're justified immediately in front of God when we accept Christ into our lives. That's the first part of salvation. We are immediately covered by the blood of Jesus. But the next process is a lifelong process. Paul's, Paul's even in this process himself, being sanctified, being made uh, new, being set apart, being made holy, being made righteous. That's, that's God uh, trimming away all of the dead branches on, our, on the vines of our lives. All the things that don't please him, and he's making us and shaping us to be more like him. And so God's power in our lives is linked to how we live, is linked to our lifestyle, is linked to how we act, the things that we say, what we do. We can't live one way six days a week and come in here on a Sunday and act righteous and think that God's power can live through our lives. We have to be willing vessels that are at least trying, at least trying to be more like Jesus. We see that Paul is tempted to bribe his way out of prison. He could have expedited uh, this irritation, but he does not do that. He understands just what he wrote in Romans, that God works all things together for good. And God's sovereignty tells us that his promises will ultimately be fulfilled. Because God is ruler over all and is bound by nothing, not time, not power, not knowledge, because God is bound by nothing, that sovereignty tells us that we will win, that God will win, no matter who's president no matter what's going on in Iran, no matter what's going on in North Korea, no matter what happens in state elections or congressional elections. And the only reason I say this is because what we, what we discussed at Hard Things this past Sunday, I think it's relevant. I remember, I remember standing in here, we were watching the SOS Reno um, documentary from Come and Live back in 2014, and I remember it was the night of congressional elections in, in our country. And every time an election happens, people get all stirred up, and people think, 
uh, when their candidate loses, the world's going to end. Um, it, it just happens. And I remember realizing it, it, nothing profound, but that, you know what, God's, God's in control no matter what. No matter if I'm taxed 80% or I'm taxed 2%. No matter what happens, no matter if I have money or don't have money, have a job or don't have a job, God is sovereign and God is in control. And nothing that could ever happen in our lives happens outside of God's plan, happens outside of God's sovereignty, happens outside of God's rule. And we have to remember that. We have to remember that God promised in, in, in Acts 23.11, he spoke to Paul in a dream. And he said, you're going to testify in Jerusalem and you're going to testify in Rome. And Paul knew something was coming. All he had to do was remember God's word and remember, their, remember the promises of God's word. And remember that God's promises and God's purposes are often achieved in ways that we would never expect. We would never expect. God tells uh, Joshua, hey, instead of laying siege to uh, Jericho, walk around it and blow trumpets. I've never seen a trumpet knock down a wall. And I've thrown a trumpet at a wall. I really haven't. But, um, but if you did, it wouldn't knock it down. But what happens? They do what they just do God's ludicrous plan, and the walls of Jericho fall down. His plan seems nuts, but God's ways are often achieved in things that we would never expect. We would never expect God to come to this earth as a baby, laid in a, in a place where, where animals feed. It does not seem visible to us that that is how God would save the world from sin. Yet he does. And he did. And it seemed unlikely. But God's purposes are often achieved in those ways. And ministry often occurs in ways that look like accidents or incidental. We think of ministry as very formal or structured. We have times, well, this church doesn't really have a time that it lets out. But anyways, most churches have a time that it lets out. It seems very formal and structured, but yet... What we see in Acts um, speaks of things that often seem unplanned or unexpected or incidental. By chance, Paul's here. By chance, Paul's there. By chance, this happens, and the gospel goes forward. It's all a part of God's plan. Ministry is, is obeying God's command, not trying to circumvent God's command by thinking that we have a better way of doing things. How arrogant of us to think that we know better than God, that all we need is a big church building, that all we need is um, a parking lot that you don't fall and trip over when you come to church. Shame on us if we think that anything like that will, will do better than, than God's ways. Shame on us if we think that. And so I want to close by this. Some of us, um, like I myself, I find myself in a season of running 110 miles an hour, and I don't run very fast. I don't run at all. Um, unless somebody's chasing me, then I might run. 
Um, but I, I feel like I'm in a season of just um, continually running, um, continually going and going and going and going and going. But some of us, I know, are in the season of waiting, are in the season of waiting for our, uh, our finances to change, waiting for our friends or our family or our spouse to change, waiting for our government to change, waiting for our health to change, waiting for our job to change. Um, others of us are, are praying for desires, things that we want in our lives, and these are good things, good desires that, that God would want us to have. We're waiting on that. Remember that God works all things together for good. What did Joseph say to his brothers when they finally recognized him? Remember, Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers, um, uh, becomes an, an, an aide to this top official in Egypt, gets accused falsely, sound familiar, of something he didn't do, gets imprisoned falsely, sound familiar, for something he didn't do, spends years to do what? Be in a low place to find himself interpreting dreams for Pharaoh. So much so that it was, that was God's providence to save the Jews from the famines that would come. Remember, he, he said, we're going to have seven years of, of plentiful harvest and seven years of famine, Pharaoh. That's what your dream means. So we need to make sure we, we are storing up and stocking up for those seven years of famine. And Pharaoh says, good, you're, you're in charge of that. And he does that. And, and so people come from outside the land, outside of Egypt, because of the famine, his brothers. Come to get food from the brother that they didn't even know existed anymore. And they finally recognize him. And what does Joseph say to them? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And I heard, um, I heard John Maxwell say it like this. The word that, I don't remember the Hebrew word that, that Joseph uses, but it means repurposed. <laughs> it's kind of cool. It doesn't just mean that God takes the junk in our lives that, the, that Satan throws at us or that we, we create ourselves sometimes. It doesn't mean that he takes that throws it away, and makes something new. The word that he uses is like a rope that's, that's, that's intertwined, that's, that's spun up. God unweaves that rope, and he weaves it into something good. He takes our mess-ups. He takes what the devil throws at us, our trials, and he repurposes it into something good. We see that in Paul's life. God takes what the devil meant to, to silence Paul, what Felix meant to get a bribe from Paul, and he uses it for good. We have to expect God to do great things. In our season of waiting, it's easy to get run down and to get tired and to get discouraged. And to feel like God doesn't care about us. But we have to expect that God will do great things. And that comes with changing our attitude. We have to change our attitude to expect God to do great things. Seek God. Trust God 
because he is good. Because we know that God is good. Trust him in his goodness and in his provision. God is in control even when the world seems out of control. Even when our lives seem out of control, even when our jobs seem out of control, even when our health seems out of control, even when uh, we don't know how to get the things that we, that we desire in life, God is in control, and God has a plan, and God has a purpose, and God is all-knowing and is, is, is providential over our lives. We have to trust him, and we have to live lives in accordance with his word. Do that and expect God to do great things, and look in the places that you would least expect them to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good to us, that you love us. Lord, I pray um, that if there's anyone in this room, Lord, that, that is waiting for their circumstance to change, waiting for something, that they would trust you, that they would look to you, that they would expect you to do great things. Lord, may we be people um, that trust in your goodness, that hope in you, Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we worship you. It's your name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going um, to sing. Scott's down here at the front. If, uh, if this morning you're here, you don't know Jesus, uh, his grace is extended to you.